you would please open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. The book of Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be continuing where we left off in the scripture. Uh, let's go down and take a, uh, just to go down and be able to, we'll see Jackson Christopher born and then uh, and just excited to come back and to pick right back up uh, where we left off. Book of Ephesians, chapter 2. <clears throat> I'm going to read the first 10 verses. That's all we'll probably get through today is just 10 verses, Lord willing. And then uh, and follow along here with me. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Verse 4, but God, which is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You can see why Ephesians is my favorite book. Because we can see, as we all know, if you understand the scriptures, that second only to the book of Romans, I would say perhaps Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is the most thoroughly written book of Christian theology that you can study in the New Testament. It is an incredible jam-packed, and as Paul, God that works through his life, the Holy Spirit works through his life, it reveals the tremendous truth to us through Ephesians, and it's important that you take notes and important that you go back and reread and reread the scriptures for yourself as the Lord of the Holy Spirit works in your life. The book of Ephesians focuses on how God is building a spiritual family, a new society based on the truth of the gospel. That's what Ephesians' book is all about. It's a society that includes both the Jews and the Gentiles, and it's this revealed truth that God has been saying right from the beginning of time of his, 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 this, 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 this society, this life of people that he is bringing to him and, 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 and developing into a, a, a body that is just pleasing and glorifying to him. Now, Paul will continue to explain how God, through the church, is building up a family. 
a new society with new standards, new values, new relationships. Because when you come into the body of Christ, when you become as part of the church as a new believer, your life changes. As a believer, your life changes and do think and do hear from any other source that says you can become a child of God, you can become a believer, and you don't have to change is a false teacher. That they say you can continue to live your life like the world as we will study, as Paul will line this out, and to think that you can still be called a Christian and be called a believer and, and be part of the family is just a lie from the pit of hell. And Paul will continue here as we learned last week of the actual positions or the wealth in Christ that we have. Today he really lines out the position in Christ that we have. And so as we take note of this, watch carefully some of the key riches and the, the depths that Paul speaks to us here in the verses, just in these ten verses alone. And we will see God will has explained so well a couple of weeks ago when we studied in, studied in chapter 1 that what God has done for all sinners in general, that he explained what God did for the Gentiles in particular, and what a miracle of God's grace that it is that he has taken out of great uh, this dilapidated house that we live in, this house of sin that we have, we're comfortable in, the junk that filled our lives and how comfortable we were with the, the, the hoarding of our lives of sin. And then God touched our lives and reached down and said, I can help you. And knocked at the door of your heart and you opened up that door and let him in. And he says, I will do a new work here. Let me at you. And he's so gentle. He's so kind. And so loving. And so patient. To do that work in our lives. And in such an individual way. But he takes us not only and gets us and brings us out of this dilapidated house of sin. and then But places us into the throne room of glory. His glory. What a miracle of God's grace. And as we approach this very long paragraph, we see four specific things I'll highlight of his workmanship in your life, in a believer's life. Follow along here. You'll notice this. That God's reach of his grace, reach of God's grace is unending. That his reach can reach a soul of any and every person ever created. That no longer can people realize that God can't work with me. God can't touch my life. God is not willing to do anything in my life. But that is just a lie as we will see. But that his reach is unending and can reach any life out there today. And that's why it's exciting to share the good news with everybody and anybody who comes across your path because you know that God's reach of God's grace can touch the heart of that person and the life can change in a moment, just like yours. 
with Paul here, and you can see in just the first three verses, brings a clarity for you and I. Like a diamond. You want to see the clarity of a diamond? Just lay that on a black felt canvas, like a jeweler does. He lays that diamond there, and it brings out every facet of that diamond that is sitting there. Clarity. Because it's the brightness or the object that is on this blackness that brings out exactly what you're looking at. Paul does that here in our verses. If you noticed here in these verses, sin works against us. The darkness of this world and the Satan, and we'll see these characteristics, comes against us. And he sits here in these, these first three verses, and he puts it a complete picture of how terrible the spiritual condition of the unsaved person is. Notice the description here, the characteristics in verse 1. The first one, if you notice, it's all about you, he's saying. Who's you? Well, we know by the scripture and by, based on the, 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 the foundation of this letter, it was to believers, you the believer. Here in Ephesus, it was to, he was writing to you the believer. He says, and he made alive. Now notice in your Bible, he made alive is in italics. That's not, it was in the original language, but you'll notice that in verse 5, Paul does bring that up, well, made us alive together in Christ. So the, the transcribers here put in there, that's why it's italicizes, but the original says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. So the very first characteristic that is highlighted that sin works against us is that we're dead. You were at one point, you were dead. Of course, this means spiritually dead, not physically dead, but spiritually dead. It's unable to understand or appreciate the spiritual things of God. So before you were saved, as a non-believer, you could hear all kinds of spiritual things coming to you from all kinds of sources, but you were dead. You couldn't understand these things. You couldn't receive it. It wasn't unable to understand these things. So he possesses no spiritual life. He can do nothing of himself to please God. And just as a person physically is dead, does not respond to physical stimuli, so is a person who is spiritually dead, is unable to respond to spiritual things. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. It means to be separated from. The corpse does not even hear. So not only does it not respond physically, but does not even hear the conversations going on in the funeral, uh, funeral parlor. It's a corpse. It's dead. Now keep in mind, this person who is a non-believer does not have a disease. He's dead. Clearly, there's a difference between having a disease and being dead. And when we're talking about the sins of a person, of a non-believer, this person doesn't have a problem with a disease. They have a problem with sin and makes them dead to spiritual things. So they do not hear. They do not respond. They have no appetite for food or drink. Feels no pain. He is dead. 
Just as the inner man of the unsaved person, his spiritual faculties are not functioning. They cannot function until God gives him life. Until God gives him the, his spirit, he is dead in the spiritual things. Now, what's the cause of spiritual death? Paul makes it clear to us it's because of trespasses and sins here in verse 1. Remember, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. In the Bible, death basically means a separation, not only physically, but as a spirit, uh, spirit is separated from the body, but also we know spiritually the spirit is separated from God when you're dead spiritually. There is no relationship. There's no connection with God. You're spiritually dead. The unbeliever is not, again, is not sick but he is dead. He doesn't need a resuscitation. He needs resurrection. He needs life to be able to understand the things of God. The theological term of this condition is called depravity. This does not mean that we are as bad as we can be. It means we are as bad off as we can be. There's a difference. When you're dead and you're separated from God and you have no life, that is not a condition, that is a position, and that is the worst position you can be in as a non-believer. And that explains why the human race is the way in the society is what we're dealing with today. The human race has not been able to evolve out of this continued cycle of warfare and crime and violence and selfishness because it cannot. No amount of education, no amount of wealth or self-improvement or self-talk is going to change and bring a dead person back to life. Only God can bring someone from death to life. There is no other way. Oh, how humans try to do it their way. But there is no other way. It will not, any of those human ways will not rectify our fallen human condition nor satisfy our soul's need for salvation. We must desire life from God. All the lost sinners are dead. And the only difference between one sinner and another is the state of decay or destruction of the house that they live in. The lost derelict on Skid Row may be more decayed outwardly than the unsaved society leader that we see on TV, but both are dead in sin. Just because the outward man looks one better than the other and you make these, these, these judgments by outward appearance, they're both dead in their sin. One corpse cannot be more dead than another. I don't care how you dress them up in the coffin. And how much gold and everything else they throw into the coffin before they bury it. They're both dead. 
This means that our world is one vast graveyard filled with people who are dead while they are still alive. We see that in 1 Timothy 5, 6, I believe. So Paul makes it very clear here. Not only is he dead, but we also in verse six or verse two and three notice he is disobedient as well. This was the beginning of man's spiritual death, if you remember. His disobedience to the will of God. God said, "In that day you will eat of it; you shall surely die." Genesis two seventeen. And then Satan came along inside and said, "You will not surely die. Get out of here. You'll be just fine." And those two listen to the lie versus the truth of God. And because they believe this lie, the first man and woman sinned and experienced immediate spiritual death and ultimately physical death. And since that time, mankind has lived in disobedience to God ever since. And if you noticed, there are three factors here. That contributes to the listening of these lies that are being filtrated. And you'll see them not only in the, the fact that it's the world, the devil, and the flesh. The three forces that causes man to listen to the lies. Take note here. The world is the world system. Puts pressures on each person to try to get him to conform to this world. We see that in Romans chapter 12. But Jesus Christ was not of this world, neither are his people that we see in John 8, 23 and John 17, 14. You and I as a child of God, as a believer in his, and we're part of the body, we are not to be part of the world. But the unsaved person, either consciously or unconsciously, is controlled by the values and the attitudes of this world. They're influenced. If you notice in this, the, the scripture, in the verses, even verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Walk means to have a, have a wandering attitude, kind of, Going with the flow and going with feelings and going with what makes feels good and goes with. and But just whatever's out there by sight, you just kind of live your life, whatever looks and feels good. That's what the original language of that word walk there means. Just aimlessly wandering and just taking in all of what the world has to offer. And you just kind of adjust and act and feel and work and do whatever you want to to adjust yourself to the values and attitudes of the people in the world around you. Not only the world does affect and causes you to be disobedient to the God, but also the devil himself or the, the fact of his influence is also uh, has an influence in this. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, Paul says here in this verse. This does not mean that Satan is personally involved in your life every single day. No, he's not, he's not omnipresent. Satan cannot be in all places at all at one time like God, because he's not compared to God. 
But because of his demonic associates, we'll see in Ephesians 6, and his power over the world system that we see in John chapter 12, verse 31, Satan influences the lives of all unbelievers and also seeks to influence believers. He wants to make people children of disobedience. That is his goal. And he will influence you and work with you and bring people into your life to cause you to be disobedient to the word of God. He himself was disobedient to God. And so he wants to bring the rest of us down with him. And one of Satan's chief tools of getting people to disobey God is through lies. He just brings in the subtleness of the into your minds a lie that goes against the word of God and then he tries to reinforce it with non-believers and the world system and everything else so it convince you, no, this must be true. Because look at everyone else is doing it. You ever said that term? Everyone else is doing it. If you've ever had children, you've already heard that multiple times. Everybody else at school does it, mom and dad. The neighbors all are doing it. Look at all the people getting ahead. They're getting ahead. These are subtle lies that the devil just permeates into your mind and in around you through association. Convince you that you, that is truth. And you believe and become disobedient. The third item, the third force that comes against you, that causes a mankind to be disobedient to God is the flesh. It's the third force that encourages the unbeliever to disobey God. But the flesh that Paul is talking about does not mean the body that we live in, but of itself. But the body is not sinful, as we know in the scripture. The body itself is not, is not sinful. But the flesh refers to the fallen nature that we are, were born with and wants to control the body and the mind and make us disobey So that fallen nature that we were lived with, that we were born with, is comes against you and I and will do a work in our minds and work within our bodies to bring these subtle lies that go against what God has already said is truth, that you can read it for yourself and understand and the Spirit of God shows you, but then all of a sudden brings these lies in to convince you to be disobedient. Now, when you're a non-believer, you don't have the Holy Spirit that lives within you, but you have the Holy Spirit outside that's convicting you and, 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 and causing you to recognize that that is a lie. To say, come to God, know my truth on this. Don't choose that path, choose my path. But the flesh sits there and it will work and work in your mind and your body. And it's like, it's like, like, it's like a dog. Right? The question is why a dog does what it does. And the, the, the answer to that question is so simple. A dog behaves like a dog because he's a dog's nature. Why does the unbeliever do what he does? 
because that is his nature. That's why we don't, we don't judge a non-believer. Because a non-believer is just naturally doing what he or she naturally does as a non-believer. And that is to live in this world like the world. Let the flesh dominate. Let the flesh do whatever they wants to do. And also the fact that the devil influences them so easily based on emotions and, and leaning into lies. But as a believer, that should not happen. As a believer, we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit keeps us in check. And says, don't, don't, no, no, no. Don't conform to this world. I brought you out of it. Don't go back. No, 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 no. Don't listen to that, the, that, that devil's associate, associate that de demonic force right there, or, or those people who are just moved by the devil. No, 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 no. Don't listen to that. Go back to the Word of God. Go back to good, solid, biblical counseling. Don't listen to those lies. I know your flesh is craving it, but that is not good for you. Don't touch it because it's just going to hurt you, and I don't want you hurt. And the Holy Spirit shows us that, and all we need to do is to respond immediate obedience and say, yes, Lord, I won't, I'm not touching it. And then you feel the joy and the peace that will go beyond your understanding. God will fill you with his peace for being obedient and strengthen you through that challenge. So why does a sinner behave like a sinner? It's because he has the nature of a sinner. And you can read Psalm 51.5 and Psalm 58.3 today. But the sinful nature in the Bible refers to the flesh. Now, not only is he dead... We see the characteristics that he is disobedient, but we also see a non-believer is also he is deprived at the end of verse 3. That the lost sinner lives to please the desires of the flesh and the wishes of the mind. That's what it literally means. When you're in a depravity or you live, you're deprived, you, you just desire to live of the flesh. You desire to fulfill all the wishes of your mind, even if it goes completely against the word of God. That's depravity. His appetites are sinful. Now, when you take an unsaved person and you put the characteristic of depravity or depraved depraved person you are not saying that he only does evil that person is a non-believer he's, he's living a depraved mind and life he is, does nothing but evil that's not true that's not according to the scriptures that's not true we know in the scriptures that he not only does he does not only does evil but that he is incapable of doing good Right? So let me make sure I make said that clarity. So many times as a believer, we look at a non-believer and say, oh, he, he lives in depravity. He, has, he can't do any good. He only does evil. It's not true. We see in the scriptures and we see around us all the time unbelieving people doing good things in this world and doing good things for his children as we see in the scripture. 
they have the ability not to do evil and but also to do good. We see it around us all the time. But we're saying he is incapable of doing anything to deserve salvation or meet the high standards of God's holiness. That's what depravity means. People out there today as a non-believer says, I want to somehow reach God and I'm going to get right with God in this moment because I have a few extra bucks and I'm going to give it to some nonprofit that's probably doing wicked stuff <laughs> against God, but they feel better and somehow, God, are you happy with me now because I gave money? Or a non-believer might actually come to church because they're really feeling pretty low because as we learned a couple of weeks ago, we, you, a non-believer will spiral out of control. So they feel, want to feel better and get closer to God. So they'll go to church once. A CEO, right? A good CEO. Christmas, Easter, and other special occasions. The CEO wants to come because they want to somehow make them feel a little bit better about what God, oh, please God, you know, don't come too heavy on me. But these individuals will do and show goodness and show and stay away from certain evils. And, and, but, but they're not capable of doing anything to deserve salvation or meet the high standard of God's holiness. Jesus said that lost sinners do good to each other, Luke 6.33, and to their children, Luke 11.13, but they cannot do anything spiritually good to please God. And that's as simple as you can remember it. Remember the natives of Malta, who kindly assisted Paul during his shipwreck moment with him and his friends. Remember the scripture? There he is, shipwrecked. Here they are. They come, come <laughs> crashing onto the shore. And here comes these natives along in Malta to come in. And they showed kindness and helped them. But they were still not saved. So not only do we see the characteristics that he's dead, that he is a disobedient, that a non-believer is depraved, but he's also doomed there at the very end of verse 3. By nature, children of wrath. By deed, children of disobedience. So a non-believer is a child of disobedience. You and I used to be there. We used to be a child of disobedience. We just wanted to do what we wanted to do, even if it conflicted with God. Because that's what my flesh wanted. That's the world dictated and that's what the demonic forces seems to influence. The unsafe person is condemned already, it says in John 3.18. The sentence has been passed, but God in his mercy is staying the execution of the sentence. We see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-10, through 10, he is not done yet with that person. Until that person leaves that body, God will continue to work in that life to try to have them hear his voice and that they can surrender their life. To put their trust in Jesus Christ alone by faith alone. Because man cannot save himself, but God in his grace steps into to make salvation possible for all men. 
Look at you and I. You still can't imagine why God would save you. You're still shocked at times. But God in his grace, this undeserving, unmerited favor says, I continue to work to try to get your attention because I personally want a relationship with you. But he gives us, man, a choice if we want it or not. That's why in verse 4, it's such a critical turn, turn in the verses that we have here. Because it starts off with two key words, but God. You have the first three verses of nothing but darkness. Nothing but a heavy lay right here this morning. But then he turns and writes and says, but God. Do you really recognize if you find yourself in darkness today? If you find that you're heavy laden and things are pretty heavy on you today, whatever it is, look here at verse 4, the start of that, but God. Because that changes everything, does it not? But God, which is rich is in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. He loves you. Paul now focuses his attention away from the sinful man and puts everything right where we need to stay focused, and that's on God. And his love for you and his mercy for you and me. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9 says, Salvation is of the Lord. And when there's salvation, when God's working your life, Paul is now going to outline in the remaining of these verses four rewards or results that he does within a believer's life. The first that we see is in verse 4. He loved us. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. He cannot be anything but love. That is his character. That is who he is. That will never change. But God would love even if there were no sinners because love is part of his very being. That's who he is. Theologians call love one of God's attributes. And God has two kinds of attributes. Those he possesses of himself, which are intrinsic, Intrinsic attributes such as life, love, holiness. That's his intrinsic um, character attributes of who he is. And that does not change. And those by which he related to his creation, you and I, especially man, are relative attributes. Example. By nature, God is truth. But when he relates to you and I, to man, God's truth becomes faithfulness. God, by nature, is holy. But when he's working with you and I, he relates to his holiness to man, it becomes justice. Love is one of God's intrinsic attributes, but when his, this love is related to sinners... It becomes what? Grace and mercy. 
God of love. When working with a lost sinner, he shows his grace and his mercy to that man or to that woman. And here in verse 4, God is rich in mercy. And in verse 7, we see that he is rich in grace. And these riches make it possible for sinners to be saved. There is no other way. And it comes as a shock to some people when they discover that we are not saved by God's love, but we are saved by God's grace and mercy. That's how we reach down. And it's in his mercy. He does not give us what we deserve. And his grace, he gives us what we do not deserve. And that is life. And all of this, don't forget, was made possible only by one way. And that is Jesus Christ and his death on the cross at Calvary. God's grace and mercy shown to you as a non-believer at the time and still non-believers today is only because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross at Calvary. There is no other way. And it's because he went to Calvary that God displayed his hatred for sin and his love for sinners. And you can go back and ponder on Romans 5, 8 and John 3, 16. His grace and his mercy. Not only is he loves us, but in verse 5, he raised us. He made us alive. When we were dead in sins, he came into our life and made us alive in him. Death to life. Darkness to light. Lost now found. A changed life. By his grace and his mercy. He accomplished this spiritual resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit using his word. We can go back and look at the four Gospels. Look at the four Gospels. We can read, and it's recorded how Jesus raised three people from the dead. We have the widow's son in Luke 7. We have Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. We have Lazarus in John chapter 11. What happened with those three individuals who were dead? In each case, he spoke. Jesus spoke the word, and this gave life. Why? Because his word is living and powerful. Hebrews 4.11. It's living, and it's powerful to change a person's life. And these three resurrections, when you go back and study them, clearly is a picture of the spiritual resurrection that comes to the sinner when he hears the word of God and believes. John 5, somewhere in the middle of chapter 5. Do we have blank on that one? 
but our spiritual resurrection is much greater because it puts us in union with Christ. God made us alive together with Christ and that you must settle in your mind. As members of his body, we are united to him. We learned that in Ephesians chapter 1. And that we share his resurrection life and power. We read that also in Ephesians chapter 1. So not only does he love us as a believer, but he has raised us and given us life. But he also, he is going to exalt us in chapter, in verse 6 here. We are not raised from the dead and left in ruins here. He says that he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's not going to leave us just laying around. He's, he's going to exalt us up, and he has. We are not raised from the dead and left in ruins because we are united to Christ. We have been exalted with him, and we are sharing his throne in the heavenlies. Yes, physically we're still here on this earth, but spiritually we're in heaven. We're united with him. And like Lazarus, we have been called from the grave. We've been called from the dead and now sit alive with Christ and enjoy his fellowship. John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Are you, on a daily basis, enjoying the fellowship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Because that is where your joy comes from, is from Him. That is where your peace comes from, is from Him. Spending time with Him on a daily basis and fellowshipping with Him, that is what is all about, my brothers and sisters. You don't wait to get to heaven to that. Yes, physically, when we get there, we get to embrace our Savior, but today, we get to spend, spiritually spend time with Him. A oneness. He's exalted us. And also here, if you notice in verses 7 through, through 9, key verses here, that in the ages to come, we might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So not only have he loves us, not only has he raised us up and he's going to exalt us up, but also he's going to keep us. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. He's going to keep us. God's purpose in our redemption is not simply to rescue us from hell, but to have a relationship to bring with him for eternity. So many of us came to Christ because we wanted to be escaped from hell because we understood, okay, there's a hell. Oh, no, I don't want that. God saved me. And yes, he saved you, but but that was just start of the work. He wants you now to understand that I didn't rescue you just from hell. You were never intended to go to hell. I never designed for you to go to hell. 
I designed to have a relationship with you for you to be with me in heaven. And then to come back and dwell on this earth to rule and reign. That is what you need to understand what the scripture says. I'm here to keep you. I'm going to keep you and through your salvation. I'm going to keep you for all eternity. And in the church body might be glorified God's grace that we learn in Ephesians chapter 1. Because God has an eternal plan. He has an eternal purpose and a plan for each of us to fulfill. He will keep us for all eternity since we have been not been saved by our good works. We cannot be lost because of our bad works. Because we've been saved by his grace and his mercy. Not based on what you can do or not do. Grace means salvation is completely apart from any. Thing you or I or work can do at all has nothing, has no play in it at all. Grace means that God does it all for Jesus' sake. Our salvation is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift and it's not a reward. He's handed you and I an opportunity to receive. gift the question is today have you received the gift of salvation have you received jesus christ into your life if you have not you're an unbeliever you need to go back and understand the first three verses talk about you but today's the day of your salvation today you're you can be the verses that Paul is talking about verses 4 through 10. You can give your life to Jesus Christ. Just turn it over to him. Put your faith, your trust in him fully. And he says he'll come in. And he will change you and give you life. But he doesn't force himself into your life. He has patiently from your, the womb of your mother has been speaking to you and getting your attention and orchestrating events and issues and problems and all kinds of things he's allowed to try to shake your tree to get you to understand you need Jesus. And I pray today you will talk to him and ask him to come into your life because he loves you. He wants to raise you up and give you life he wants to exalt you into the heavenlies. And he will keep you safe for eternity. You will be in his presence. And this is the work that God does for us. It is a finished work. John chapter 17. John chapter 19 verse 30. We can add nothing to it, Hebrews 10. We dare take nothing from it or to change it in any way. When Jesus died, do you remember what happened? The veil of the temple ripped from top to bottom. It wasn't some little tiny thin curtain. It's over 12 inches thick of layers of fabric after layers of fabric. 
Only one was allowed once a year to go into the Holy of Holies. But as we see God said, I am going to make a change. And when he died, everything changed. That was ripped from top to bottom, signifying the way to God was open for you and I to directly come to God and not through man. And there is no more need for earthly sacrifices because there was one sacrifice and that was the Lamb of God himself. And when he sacrificed his life, that was it. The finish, the work, the great work of salvation was complete, done with. God did it all. And he did it by his grace. Because you have to understand, sin will always work against you. But God will always work for you. And that great work started with the conversion. That is where the new life begins. And we finish here with verse 10. If you notice here in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When you've given your life to Christ, he starts a good work in you, doing it his way. We fight him so often as he's trying to have his way with you and to, to orchestrate and put desires in your heart and you throw those desires away and you try to get the worldly desires, your fleshly desires, the devilish desires to back, that tries to creep back in. God says, now get those out. Those are not true. Those are lies. These are the desires that I'm putting in your heart. These desires was orchestrating and taking you step by step through this life, leading you right into my open arms when I decide to bring you up to heaven. Why are you fighting me? And so many times we sit in there and he has this work he wants to do and we keep doors shut in the house and says, God, please fix, fix the, the living room. Fine, that's when everyone walks in. That's what people see in the house. Just fix the, the living room. That's when people come in my life, that's all I'm going to show them. And God said, okay, I'll fix, the, I'll fix, your, I'll fix your living room up. That's great. But then he, as he gets that finished, he says, now let's work on the kitchen. I don't let anyone in the kitchen. Only the certain people in the kitchen. Okay, let's work on that so they don't have to deal with that in your life. Okay, work in the kitchen. But then after he's done with that, he says, okay, now let's work upstairs. No, we don't let you go upstairs. We don't let anyone upstairs. We made sure we had the private little bathroom downstairs that people have to suck their way into it to you. They don't use the bathrooms upstairs. No, we need to work in your bedrooms as well. And then eventually he's going to work the attic and he's going to work the basement. Because God is going to have his way. Because what? His intrinsic attribute is what? Love. How does he display that in your life? Faithfulness. 
He is faithful to complete the work that he has started in your life when you gave your life to Christ. It's guarantee, my brothers and sisters. Let him have his way in your life because he's faithful and he's going to complete it. He's doing the great work. The word here, workmanship, is in the Greek poema, which means poem or a work of art. And so when you become a believer, you're a new creation. He, you're his artwork. And he's going to start that artwork and he is going to finish that puzzle guaranteed. I always explain this to people because people are like, I don't understand what's going on in my life and I don't understand why this is happening in my life. Why does this have to happen? Why did this happen? Why did these people did this? And, why? and I just say, your life is just a new creation. It's a picture. It's art. It's a big, huge puzzle. And you've got all these pieces and one piece is handed to you at a time and you're looking at that piece only from that perspective and you're like, where does this go in the puzzle? And so many times we lean on our own understanding and we sit there and say, oh, look at the blue and look at this. It's got to be part of the sky. It's going to be beautiful. And then you get down a few more steps in life and you go down a few more pieces of puzzles because you set that aside and say, I'm not sure what that happened. What, how is God going to use that in my life? I don't know. This is really terrible. I can't figure it out. And then God says, Get the piece that I showed you a time ago and watch how that piece was not part of the sky that you thought, oh, it was supposed to be going to be glorious. No, that was part of the rock formation that was building on the rock. So many times we see really bad things happen in our lives. They didn't go the way they were supposed to go. But you have got to trust God. Did you not give your life to God? Do you fully trust him? Then if you fully trust him, then you don't have to watch him do the work in your life. You can sit there and trust that he, whatever he's going to do is going to be good. He's a good, good father. He's going to do what is right. He's good. He's going to work it and he's going to part of the entire new creation, the new artwork that he's doing, the poema, the workmanship in your life and you must take that by trust by faith because it's not by sight I assure you because when you live by sight you live like the world you're living based on your flesh and eventually you will also be influenced by demonic forces of this of influence because you will live constantly by feelings and by sight Control that you do or do not have. But when you understand his workmanship and that he is perfect and he will do a faithful work in your life, he will change you far greater than you ever think you can do it yourself. It's his workmanship. But how does he do this work in us? Well, he does it through his power of the Holy Spirit. It says in Philippians 2.13, both to will and to do his good pleasure. 
Christ finished his work of redemption on the cross, but he arose from the dead and returned to heaven, and there he carries out his unfinished work of perfecting his church, to perfecting you as part of the body of Christ. There he is sitting there, Christ is coming in through and by his word of God, is equipping you and I to do the work and the change in our work and our lives while we're here on this earth. And to do this, he uses three special tools, and you hear me say this over and over and over again, and I'll continue again in this message, hoping that you will understand it. God works through your life in three simple tools. The word of God. Go back and look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And he does that through prayer. We'll get to that in Ephesians chapter 4. And the third one is through suffering. And he does that. And we can go back and read 1 Peter 4 verses 11 through 14. He will change you if you're reading the word of God. What transforms the mind but only by the reading of the word of God? There is no other way. Prayer, because you're spending time talking to him. Stop talking to yourself. Most of you and I are talking to ourselves. 80% of the time is talking to ourselves. You're not talking to God. So don't be fooled. Talk to God. Then shut your mouth and listen because he has something to say. Be still and know that he's God. And thirdly, he allows sufferings to come in our life to change us. I hate that part. None of us want to suffer. But he allows suffering to change us, to speak to our lives. Because when suffering comes, what does it cause us to do as a believer? It doesn't cause a non-believer to do this. But as a believer, what does it cause you? And you, I can always tell of a brother or sister, when I watch them hitting a point of suffering point, a hot spot, I can immediately know if I'm talking with a brother or sister. You know how? Because it causes them to do what? To talk to God and go to his word. Did you hear me? If something hot spot happens in your life and you're suffering, does it cause you to talk to prayer? Does it cause you to talk to him and go to his word? Then you are on track that God is faithfully doing a work in your life. Embrace what is happening in your life. God is going to walk you through that suffering, and you're going to be better at the other end because he will never leave you or forsake you. Because God is working in us, and he's faithful to complete it. And there is no other way. So this false teaching, oh, you have to name it and claim it, no suffering, and if you're not suffering, you don't have faith, it's just a lie, 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 lie from the pit of hell. Don't listen to those teachings. God uses sufferings to change his people, to help them grow. The Spirit of God ministers to us. When we are feeling alone and we are all by ourselves and people have let you down and nothing has worked out the way you expected it, then and it's driving you to prayer, driving you to talk to God about these things, that is when God releases his power and direction in your life and he gives you clarity of by his word of God of what to do and he cleanses us and nourishes us and strengthens us and helps us to understand the clear path, a lit path of how to live. 
But if you're the world, if you're a non-believer, you will turn to the world for wisdom. You will turn to people, non-believers, who have used drugs and alcohol and everything else of this world to try to pacify and comfort them. You and I used to do that. Look what it got us, and then God came in and touched us. God shows us clearly there's a time in our life where God wants to bring his power and his direction and to, to change our lives and through a time where we may not understand, but God understands. And as you study the word of God, talk to Moses. God took him into the wilderness for 40 years to do a work in him, to turn around and use him for 40 more years in an incredible way. He took Joseph, he put him in through suffering for 13 years before God put him on the throne of Egypt, second in power to Pharaoh. Look at David, who was anointed king at a youth, at a, at a young, young age, as a shepherd boy, but then God used that time and put him in exile for a period of time. People wanted to kill him to be able to do a work in his life to raise him up to be the great king. Even the Apostle Paul, after he got saved, God took him to the desert of Arabia and gave him three years of a desert experience of dryness that he never experienced in his life to be able to take from that conversion. That's not where it ends. When you converted, when you've been changed, when you've been born again, that is not where it ends. That is the beginning of life. And then God took here Apostle Paul and put him into the three years into the Arabia desert with no doubt to bring experience of God's deeper work to prepare him for the ministry. And he will do that same work in you and I. You'll be converted, you'll be born again, but then he's going to take you through things, sufferings, through moments, desert experiences, exile and exclusion. You could be wrapped up and feel like you're not doing anything for God for a long time, but you're working and keep seeking after him. You keep asking God, what do you have for my life? What's my purpose? What's my gifts? What do you have for me, God? And God says, I'm doing a work in you. You just don't know. And then all of a sudden, you're going to come out of it. And then God is going to use you for his kingdom in glorious ways. Do you believe that, my brothers and sisters? Because if you believe it, then that means you put your trust in Jesus Christ and his workmanship in your life. But not only God works for us, works in us, but he works, God works through us. Notice at the end of 10, created Christ Jesus for good works. He created us after he's done this work for us to do good works. We are not saved by good works, but saved for good works. We are not saved by faith plus good works. That's legalism. But by faith in Jesus Christ alone, that works. When you become a child of God because you've decided, I heard the word of God and I want to put my entire trust and faith in Jesus Christ, period. God, then do whatever you need to do after that. He says, great. 
I'm going to start a work in you. And I'm going to give you spiritual gifts that you don't even know. And then I'm going to use that for my kingdom and for my glory and for my pleasure. Just be willing vessels to be obedient as I take you from place to place, from moment to moment. Just know that it's not a mistake that I have you right where you're at. Why are you struggling with me about this? Why are you complaining about this? Why are you wishing to run and get out of this when I, God, have brought you here for a purpose to do a work in you? Why are you not joyful and, and, and peace that comes with spending time with me? Yes, I know you're not happy with the fact that this is suffering. But you can still have peace that goes beyond your understanding if you will just embrace me in your life through these moments. Because I'm working through you to do a work. We see and we don't have time to go through these, but at some point we'll show you all the different kinds of works the scripture talks about. But just know this. Let your light so shine before man that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, Matthew 5.16. Don't perform good works to glorify ourselves. But to glorify God. Paul desired that Christ would even magnify his body even if it meant death. If you remember reading in Galatians and also in Philippians. We should abound in every good work, 2 Corinthians 9.8. And be fruitful in every good work, Colossians 1.10. Oh, we can go on and on and on about the good works that God wants to do and work in and through your life. Will you allow him to be the workman in your life? His workmanship. Not your own. I know you're a handyman. I know you're so smart and wise and strong. Recognize all that comes from him anyway. But let him, his workmanship, be what dominates your life, that it will bring him glory and not you. Amen? Father, we again thank you for your word this morning. We praise you. We glorify you. And again, Lord, we thank you for your word to speak to us individually, but also as a body that we call Calvary Chapel North Country, Lord. Again, we thank you for all your provision, for your grace and your mercy upon our lives. I pray for each person here, Lord, that you would bless them, strengthen them, encourage them, that your word today would just be etched that what you wanted them to hear, they heard. What you wanted to hold back from them, you, you held back from them. But Lord, that from this, that they have a deeper love and desire to know you on a personal level. That they would want to seek you and read your word to talk to you more. And to be willing to serve you here. To give of themselves for you through those good works that you have for them. Bless our time and our rest of our time of fellowship, Lord. Use us in our each other's life to encourage one another, 
that you exercise your spiritual gifts in us, Lord, to help one another in our time of fellowship, as a family to love one another, to support one another. Lord, may we spend time together in unity. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.